turn in the scriptures today to the Old Testament book of Exodus and to the chapter 17, please. Exodus, the chapter 17, we're going to read from the latter part of this chapter, second half of the chapter or thereabouts. verses. These chapters, of course, detail for us the uh, aftermath of the removal of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt and some of the early experiences. I expect that what we read here this morning will be familiar to many in the gathering this morning. You will know something of the detail that we are given here in these verses. Exodus 17, and we read at verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amen. We trust that the Lord will add of his own blessing. To this the public reading of his precious word here today. I have no doubt that many will be familiar with the details of the memorable incident recorded in Exodus chapter 17. In brief, it is the account of the war between Israel and Amalek a conflict which ended in victory for the people of God and in the erection of a memorial altar. At the commencement of this critical engagement, Moses went up to the summit of the mountain, while Joshua led the army into battle. There is a considerable body of opinion holding to the belief that Moses went up to pray. This is the traditional view 
that he ascended the mount in order to intercede for the army of Israel. Now, if we are to pursue the analogy, it does indeed have much to teach us of the exercise of prayer. Immediately, we see that real prayer is a strenuous activity. Moses was required to climb the mountain. Prayer is often uphill work. It is not easy. There are many difficulties, many discouragements, and many distractions. And of course, all the while, we must fight against the reluctance of our own flesh. And then, of course, effectual prayer is never unaccompanied by legitimate endeavor. We are told that even as Moses made his way up the mountain, he directed that Joshua would choose out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Verse 9. Intercession is not a substitute for industry. Of course we must pray. And the burden of our hearts in these days must be for prayer. But at the same time we must do what we can. And then you will notice that sincere prayer is inextricably linked to success in whatever endeavor we pursue. We're told in verse 11 it came to pass when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. All of the effort in the world, as far as the work of God is concerned, without prayer, is wasted effort. It's wasted effort. Once again, in prayer, you will note that we are apt to grow weary. We are told at the outset of the verse 12 that Moses' hands were heavy. Moses' hands were heavy. The Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples to the end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. But isn't it true to say that we do faint and we do fail? And as far as the exercise of prayer is concerned, we do fall by the wayside. We're not so resolute as we would wish to be. We're certainly not so resolute as we know we ought to be. We may start out well, with enthusiasm and with the best of intentions, but how do we finish? How do we continue? And then you will notice one further thing here. You will notice that in the work of prayer, we need the help of like-minded souls. Uh, we have noted verse 12. We read that they took a stone and put it under him, that is Moses. And he sat there on, and Aaron and her stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. How much easier is the task as far as the work of God is concerned, with others standing alongside us and laboring alongside us. And I tell you, dear believer, that is certainly the case as we 
reflect upon the exercise of prayer as we seek to engage with God. Well, the task is easier if we can look around and see one on this side and one on that. So Moses positioned himself on the mount with the rod of God in his hand. And the rod of Jehovah was the symbol and the vehicle of divine power. You can discover numerous illustrations of this if you take time to study the wanderings of the children of Israel. And as we have observed, when Moses lifted the rod, Amalek fled before Israel. When the rod dropped, Israel fled before Amalek. So the uplifted hand was not just the hand of intercession, but the hand which communicated power and victory. Once the battle is over, Moses builds this memorial of thanksgiving to God, piling together these great stones to teach Israel the laws of battle and the conditions of victory. These laws and conditions are implied in the name which Moses gave to the altar that he built. And if you go towards the end of the chapter to the uh, last verse but one, you will find the name. It is Jehovah Nissi. Now the text does not give the interpretation of the name. If you have a margin in your Bible, you may discover that the sense is given there. The word simply means the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. And as we reflect upon that name this morning, I believe that it will teach us some very important lessons about the challenges that face us as we ponder stepping out and going forward for the Lord in these early days of another year. The Lord is my banner. Three simple things. <coughs> First of all, I want you to notice that the conflict is the Lord's. The conflict is the Lord's. As believers, we are charged in this life to fight the good fight of faith. If we are obedient, we will have battles all of our days. Believer, I assure you of that. We will have battles all of our days. It is therefore of great importance that we realize in whose cause we are fighting. The banner was the symbol of the cause for which an army fought. It was, if you like, the crest or the badge of the king whom the army was to follow. And so here we have Moses affirming that the Lord, the Lord was his banner by giving this name to the altar, he sought to impress upon the minds of the Israelites that he had led out of Egypt and who now looked into the eyes of the enemy for the first time, the elevating and bracing thought that they were God's soldiers. God's soldiers. And that the warfare which they waged was not for themselves, nor for the conquest of the land for their own sake, nor for mere outward liberty, but for God. For God. 
They were fighting that the will and the purpose of God might prevail. And this was the first message of the altar. Remember when you go into battle that the battle is the Lord's. The standard under which you fight is the God for whose cause you contend. No one else and no one less than Jehovah himself. You are soldiers. You are consecrated. You are set apart for God. That was the message. That was the message. And my friends, I say to you that this is the duty and this is the calling of believers to this day. We have a battle to fight. And it is sure that we will not think highly enough of that battle unless we clearly and constantly recognize that we fight on the side of the Lord. And in so doing, there is no doubt that we are fighting against, against the power and the influence of the devil in all areas of life. And society, he is the undisputed prince of the power of the air. It would be impossible to name any path of life where Satan has failed to leave his mark. I'm conscious that I'm not telling you something here today that you are not already aware of. <coughs> Look around you. Look around you in this age. What do we see? Religious apostasy and spiritual compromise. We see all manner of immoral behavior and practice. We see permissive laws. We see unprincipled government. Ours is a sick society. And by every legitimate means we must fight against these evils and what they mean. Let us remember this. The first field upon which we have to fight for God is within ourselves. Within ourselves. We fight all the while against the old nature with its lazy and selfish and corrupt ways. It is this old nature or I suppose more correctly, the practice of saying yes to it that causes us to be less than we could be, less than we should be, less than we must be for God. Our minds and hearts must be brought into subjection. We often think of the experience of the Apostle Paul and if you know anything of the life and ministry of this remarkable man, you will know that he was often engaged in battle for the Lord. And we might say that the battles in which Paul labored were fought on many fronts. But so often he returns to the thought that he is battling even within his own heart, within his own soul. I think of those words that come in the first letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In fact, when we think of the engagement that Paul had with that church, we might say that, well, he was almost battling with them on occasions. Seeking to show them where they had gone wrong and to steer them back into the right path. 
But even as he writes to that fellowship, 1 Corinthians 9, if you go to the end of the chapter, he puts it like this in verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. Listen to it now. So fight I. So fight I. Not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Though here he is, conscious of engaging in the work of God, battling on this front and on that front, fighting for the Lord, yet remembering that there's a battle to be fought in his own heart and his own soul. And he fears, lest he should be so preoccupied with all of these other considerations that he actually might lose the battle in his own life. There will be no victories for us over other enemies until we have, first of all, subdued the foes that are within. Are we consecrated to this fight, dear believer? Are we consecrated to it within and without? The conflict is the Lord's. We are his soldiers. And he must never have anything less than our best. Surely as we ponder this today, it is a day for rededication. Are you prepared for that? To rededicate your heart, your soul, your mind, your body to the Lord? Are you prepared to be that living sacrifice? Sold out for the Lord? The conflict is his. Let me take it further. Let me suggest to you that the commands are the Lord's. Not only the conflict, but the commands, the banner in ancient warfare proceeded in front of the army and determined and controlled its movements. The soldier was to fix his eye upon the banner and follow wherever it led. Wherever it led. And so Moses, by giving this name to the altar, was teaching Israel that they were under the command of God. It was the movements of his staff that were to be followed. They were not simply to analyze the circumstances in which they were found and to determine which course to take based upon their own thinking or the counsel of others or what might be expedient for them. They were to fix their gaze upon that banner. Whatever way it led, they were to follow. And of course, this is a lesson we do well to take on board today. My dear believer, absolute obedience is the first duty of the Christian soldier. Absolute obedience. And what does that mean? It means the entire suppression of our own wills. 
We are to give way to the counsel of God, to the command of God every time. And I say to you, if we fail to do this, then all of our protests and all of our claims that we are following Christ are a mockery. Remember how the Savior addressed those people who attended upon his preaching? I give you one example, but there are others. If you turn to the Gospel of Luke in the chapter 6, I often think that if he were to be assessed by some of the professors of evangelism in colleges today, that the Lord Jesus Christ would most likely fail the test. But if you study the gospel record, you will find that he did not rush to embrace everyone who professed to be his follower. Inevitably, he put them to the test. And that's what is happening here in Luke's gospel, chapter 6, near to the end of the chapter. There were those who were following him. There were those who professed allegiance to him. And we have this very telling question in Luke chapter 6 and the verse 46, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You see, the Savior immediately draws a contrast between their words and their walk. The words were fine, Lord, Lord. But they were not doing what he was asking of them. One thing to profess obedience to the captain of the army, the test comes when he shouts the word of command. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? We live in an age where all manner of individuals and institutions, they say we're Christian, we follow the Lord. But here's the test. Why do you call me Lord? But you don't do what I'm asking you to do. <clears throat> Obedience. Nothing more. Nothing less. Is the test of our discipleship. The supreme test. Of our discipleship. I know that this principle is the death knell for that kind of attitude that is very prevalent in vast swathes of the church today. It's the attitude which says it's all right to pick and choose what we are to obey. If we are being asked to do something that is comfortable and suitable and not too difficult, well then of course we will obey. But if it demands sacrifice, if what the Lord requires means that we will have to give up the habits of a lifetime, if it means that we will be made different from those around us, well, we'll pass. We'll pass. Dear child of God, I tell you that kind of Christianity is a sham. And maybe it's not too much to say that it is an abomination to God. Remember the story of King Saul in the Old Testament? 
There are ever so many lessons we might draw from that story, but the one I have in mind is that occasion where Saul decided that he would disobey a word that had been given to him from the Lord. <coughs> and we have those telling words spoken by Samuel the prophet. Saul decided he was going to offer sacrifice to the Lord. He was going to uh, keep some of the animals back, the spoil of victory, in order that they might be sacrificed to the Lord. That was a laudable aim, you might say. That was something worthwhile. But of course the key point was that he had been told not to do that. Not to do it. And Samuel spoke to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22, and he said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Looking at this objectively, you might say, well, that was a wonderful thing Saul was doing there. Taking these animals, sacrificing them, to the Lord. They might have been useful to him, to the people. They might have been productive. There he was, sacrificing them to the Lord, bringing them to the altar. But that was not what the Lord asked of him. Samuel said, it's much more important you obey the Lord. Whatever you might think, whatever your thoughts are, whatever anybody else is doing, whatever you've done in the past, obey the Lord. Serving in the army of the Lord is about obedience. Sometimes it is not easy to discern which way the banner is leading. We cannot quite catch the words of the captain. What are we to do in such circumstances? Where's the guidance we need? I believe that when we really need it, when we have sought for it, when we have waited for it, it will come. It will come. Many of you will be familiar with those wonderful words in the book of Proverbs, how often we refer to them. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, in the chapter uh, 3, as I say, many folk will, will know these verses very well. From the early part of Proverbs chapter 3, we tend to return to them over and over. Uh, we think of them at key moments in life. In Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. I don't know whether you've ever thought about it like this, but in those two verses, you have three conditions. And then you have a glorious promise. Three conditions. What are we to do? We're to trust in the Lord with all our hearts. We're not to lean to our own understanding. We're to acknowledge him in all our ways. And then the promise. He shall direct thy paths. If we're ready to say the Lord is our banner. We're willing to obey him. He will never desert us. And he will impart to us the direction and the guidance we need. But let me finish by remarking finally here that the conquest is the Lord's. So we have the conflict and the 
commands and now the conquest or the victory. The conquest is the Lord's. Banner to us uh, suggests a familiar but probably a false idea. It suggests the notion of a flag or some piece of drapery which fluttered and flapped in the wind. But the banner of ancient days was a rigid pole with some solid ornament of bright metal on the top so that it might catch the light. And this thought brings us back to Moses. The rod in his hand was a miniature banner. When it was lifted, there was victory. When it fell, there was defeat. And so by the name of the altar, Moses was saying, you must not suppose that I have won the day here, or even anything that I have done. It was rather the Lord. It was Jehovah. Jehovah is my banner. The Lord is my banner. And what he was inviting the people to do was to look much higher than the mountain. Look to heaven itself. Look to heaven itself. As we stop and we look around us today, isn't it right to say that we are looking for conquest? We are looking for victory. Uh, we think about the aspects of the work of God in which we are involved. We think about all we're seeking to do for the Lord. We're looking for conquest. We're looking for victory. I trust we are. We need it. We need it. We look to the life and labor of the church and for too long the church has been languishing in the place of defeat. We have lost too many battles. But we are too apt to trust in man and man's devices. The great emphasis of our day is on external things. And something of that emphasis has invaded the church, even the true church of Christ. Looking to plans and schemes and programs, looking to organizations and committees, looking to men and movements and meetings, looking here and there and everywhere. These things have their place. I do not disparage them. I do not despise them. But we must look higher and we must look deeper. Because if we are to have victory in our lives, if we are to have victory in our labors, if we are to have victory in our land, it will come from the Lord. It will come from the Lord. He alone is the source of it. That's why God's people are moved to pray for revival. Because revival is just about God stepping in. It's just about God taking the field. It's just about a mighty divine intervention. And I tell you, we need that intervention. I look around me in the place where I minister. And I acknowledge we need that sort of intervention. I see the evidence of it every single day. I don't suppose it's any different here. We need the Lord to come. We need the Lord to work. We need the Lord to take the field. And so we got to get our eyes away from material things, man-made devices. 
I like that verse in the Psalms, the Psalm 20. In the verse 7, it conveys something of the resolve of the psalmist and the people. Some trust in chariots, he says, some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Of course, that's an image that has to do with conflict, it has to do with the battle. It's making a comparison here between the children of Israel and their enemies. And the point is, of course, that as Israel looked out upon her enemies, she would inevitably have seen the chariots and the horses. Israel didn't have the chariots. She didn't have the horses. Essentially, she was not a warlike people. She was an agricultural people. But she had the Lord. You go through the history and you see over and over again that even though the children of Israel and the nation of Israel was outnumbered and outmaneuvered in the human sense, nevertheless she emerged victorious time after time after time. How? It was the Lord. It was the Lord. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. We will remember the name of the Lord our God. I tell you, that's where the victory will come. God alone is the source of it. And so, dear believer, may we look for that victory. May we long for it. May we do what we can to prepare the way for it. By holding on to the Lord, looking to Him urgently, with all our hearts, with all our souls. And in the days to come, may we know the blessed truth of Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is our banner. May the Lord bless these few thoughts from his word to all of our hearts here today.